This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's show comes from St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Moreland in Melbourne's inner north. Today's big question, how do I know what's real? We're asking this question today to Dr. Catherine Kenobi. Catherine has worked as a cognitive scientist and university lecturer in developmental psychology. She's also the author of her debut novel, a popular young adult fiction book, Mind Cull. And she joins me now. Please welcome Dr. Catherine Kenobi. Well, Catherine, welcome to Bigger Questions, um, and congratulations on Mind Cull, your debut novel. Now, they say that the book publishing market's pretty competitive, so is it a bestseller yet? Uh, not yet, <laughs> okay, right. but um, I was very, very excited when it was released with Ford Street Publishing in June of this year. And it's even got to a second print run or something, is that right? Or That's right, so the first print run sold well, and so that's gone into a second print run with some lovely quotes from reviews on the back, so hopefully that will persuade a lot of people to be interested. And it's got found its way into a lot of schools in school libraries in Australia and New Zealand, which is exciting. That's, that's very exciting. Now, they say a book has less than a 1% chance of being stocked in an average bookstore, yet your copy of Mind Cull was in Dimmicks where I bought one. So what's your secret? How did you get it in? Well, at the time that the novel was released, a review was released in the journal for the Australian book industry, which is called Books and Publishing, and the lovely reviewer gave it four and a half stars and said it was a must-read, so that helped us convince the bookshops to buy oh, it. All right, very good, yeah. Well, excellent, that's very, that's very good. You have succeeded, you finished the book. Are you happy with the final product? Very happy. Yes, excellent. Well, congratulations on Mind Carl. It's an excellent book. It's well worth the effort. I highly recommend it, and it does deal with many big questions of reality. But before we get to talk a bit more about those, we like to kick off bigger questions with a couple of smaller questions. We try to have a bit of fun here on the show. And today we're talking here with author Catherine Kenobi about reality. So, Catherine, our smaller questions to you are about the classic 1999 movie, The Matrix. Now, a movie which deals with the big questions of reality. Now, were you inspired by The Matrix at all? Did that impact your work on Mind Cull? I watched it when it came out, which is, what, 20 20 years years ago, ago. yeah, that's right. Yes, and I enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting the way it played with ideas of reality, and it did come to mind a couple of times when I was writing. Right. Well, anyway, we'll see how you go. Uh, There's two questions, both multiple choice. Okay, question one. According to the movie The Matrix, which pill gave you access (laughs) to the truth? Was it A, the red pill, B, the blue pill, C, neither pill, you shouldn't be popping pills, or D, both pills, reality isn't affected by which pill you take? (laughs) Well, so I've got a 50% chance (laughs) of getting it right because I know it was one of the coloured pills. Yes, yep. The audience might be able to help you out. Uh, can I get some help? <laughs> uh, red. They say red. That's what, that's what you're going with? Yes. Good. <laughs> Thanks, the guys. The answer is A, the red pill. That's right. I'm the... glad you're allowed to phone a friend. <laughs> <laughs> the blue pill ignores reality. As Morpheus says, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. The red pill was the one to show you the truth. Okay, question two. You're doing well. Morpheus was a key character in the movie The Matrix, yet Morpheus was also a Greek god. Now, according to Greek mythology, what was Morpheus the god of? Was he A, 
the God and protector of bees? Was he B, the God of dreams? C, the God of bread baking and ovens? Or D, the God of weeding? Now, apparently all these gods were worshipped in the ancient world, but only one was called Morpheus. So which one was it? It has to be dreams. It is indeed. Congratulations. That's right. Catherine, you get reality. If you've got two of our two smaller Hello. questions, big round of applause. That's right. Thank you. Now, your novel, The Mind Color, is a bit more recent than The Matrix, but it also explores the natures and fringes of reality. So can you give us a bit of a spoiler-free description of what the, what's in the book? I would love to. So the novel is set in the near future. This is a time when people rely on virtual reality headsets in the same way that we rely on smartphones. So when you want to call someone, they appear before you as a hologram. You can see and hear things that aren't really present because you're looking and listening through your headset. When you're walking down the street and it's not a very attractive street, then you can walk down a different street and your, see your and hear different things, um, if, that things that aren't present. So your headset will change reality so that you can have a more pleasant So it can be more um, enjoyable for you. When you are a teenager and you want to post a YouTube video, you can post a virtual reality clip that people can actually interact with. So when they enter your clip, it's like they're in the room with you. And that's what my main character, Isla, does. She's 16 and she posts these public virtual reality clips. And her clips are so successful that she gets shortlisted in an international competition run by a global tech giant. And part of being shortlisted involves being invited to an English mansion to try out some cutting edge virtual reality skin suits that have never been used before. But, of course, the plot thickens as it's a thriller. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And law enforcement officers coerce her into spying for them. Underground activists reveal a murderous plot. And along the way, she begins to realise that even her own mind is not safe. So she's surrounded by secrets and lies and she's trying to work out who she should trust and to decide how far she's willing to go to protect innocent lives. Sounds brilliant. Well, yeah, I've read the book, so I can't know where it goes. It's a very good summary, actually. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. Now, the, the blurb for your book does pose the question, who can you trust when nothing is as real as virtual reality? How does your book to toy with the ideas of virtual reality and how does that uh, challenge our conceptions of reality? Well, the thing about virtual reality is that you are experiencing through your senses an artificial environment. So you can see things and you can touch things if you're wearing the correct equipment and you can hear things that aren't actually present. But at a sensory level, it seems to you that they are present. Yeah. And so this is what you're trying to explore in the book, the, the interplay between virtual reality and the real world, so to speak? That's right. As a way of thinking about how do we know what is real and how can we be real now and develop authentic relationships that are real, I'm looking at a future times when a lot of the issues that teens face now have progressed 
And if you think about how technology has changed in our lifetimes and, and how much, how different things are from when, well, from when I was a teenager now, now, what's going to happen when our teens become adults? What changes are they going to see? If they see changes of the magnitude that we've seen in our lifetimes, what might the world be like and what might it be like to grow up in that world? Yeah. So is that connected then to social media as well? That's what you're trying to interplay with in your book? That's right. I think social media is a, it's a, plays a really important role in the life of um, a teenager. Teens are trying to work out who they are and how they can develop meaningful relationships. And social media plays a kind of intermediary role in that space and it raises lots of issues for teens about what is real and who's being real with you and who is the real you that I'm trying to look at in this book. Mm. And is this one of the reasons that the book is targeted at sort of young adults? That's right. It's a really interesting and important time where there are lots of changes. So as a developmental psychologist, it's yeah. a really exciting time to look at. And people make all sorts of decisions about what is real that affect their whole lives. Mm -hmm. So your work, you have, you have, do you have a PhD in cognitive psychology, uh, devel sorry, developmental co cognitive psychology. So did that inform your thinking in writing the book? It did. In my work researching cognitive development, I was interested in looking at evidence for how we change with, as a result of different experiences. So how our understanding, our thinking changes. And now as a mum of teens, I'm looking at my teens playing Fortnite, being involved in social media, and wondering how those experiences are affecting their development. So what's at stake then, do you think? If you think of what can go wrong, I guess that tells you what's at stake. Because in that space between the world that they're involved in, the, the virtual world or the online world in our age, and the real world, lots of um, interesting and uh, dangerous things can happen as well. If we think about, say, bullying or grooming or um, even indoctrination into extreme ideologies, all of those things are, are usually mediated by technology now. Mm, yeah. So then virtual reality really does challenge what is real in the perceptions of not just teens, but everyone. That's true. But the reason why I'm particularly interested in teens is that that's a developmental stage when what your peers think of you and the way you uh, project yourself to your peers is, is, is particularly mm. pivotal. So that's why social media has more of an impact on teens than perhaps on adults who've sorted out some of those things mm. about themselves already. And in the book, my main character, she is a shy, anxious 16-year-old, but in her clips that she presents of herself, she appears relaxed, spontaneous, a totally different person than the real person that she is. And she actually plans and scripts these spontaneous clips. Yeah. And so when everyone likes her clips and they appear to love her, on one level that makes her feel good about herself, of course, but on another level she feels like they don't really know her. Mm. So that doesn't, that's not meaningful. There's also a sense that they're not encountering the real her, perhaps. That's right. They don't know the reality about her. Yeah.
Now, Morpheus from the movie The Matrix asks Neo at a critical point of the movie, what is real? How do you define real? So how could you answer Morpheus? So that's an easy question. (laughs) What is real? (laughs) I think there is an objective reality. So something that is real is something that exists independently of our perceptions. Right, okay. But do you think the virtual reality and social media challenge that? Well, that's interesting. Virtual reality and social media probably challenge it in different ways because virtual reality is about the senses and social media is more about what people believe about the world. But in my book, I've put them together and made made social media really powerful because it's actually conveyed through virtual reality and that raises a whole lot of problems and kind of ramps up the tension and ramps up the stakes. Mm. Now Morpheus in The Matrix goes on to say, if you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. Is this too simple? It is. (laughs) (laughs) It is too simple and I don't think, although people might say that reality is perception, I don't think anyone actually lives as though that is the case. Mm. So perception is what he's talking about there. Perception is your brain's interpretation of the electrical signals received from the sense organs. So you have the senses and then you have the brain making sense of the information that comes in. And people's perceptions are influenced by their beliefs, their biases, their memories, their context, their mood, all sorts of things. As you all know, many things influence your perceptions and you also can probably think of many examples where the same thing is perceived very differently by two people. But the objective reality of that thing doesn't change. That thing stays the same, it's just that two people perceive it differently. Mm. So what was your inspiration then for the book? Well, I had read The Hunger Games and I really enjoyed it for a number of reasons. I liked the immediacy of the style. So The Hunger Games is written in the first person present tense and so it takes you into the mind of the main character who's a 16-year-old girl as well, Katniss, and you care about her and so you're taken away into this other world and you get involved in the book and so I really was inspired by that. I was also inspired by the book of Esther in the Bible because Esther's probably a similar age to Katniss. She's probably a teenager and she gets drawn into this frightening situation where she's forced to make a choice about a threat to her people that she finds out about. Yeah, so in the Old Testament book of Esther, the main character, as you said, was responding to a threat of her people. Yet she was in a position to potentially save her people. And Esther 4.14 says, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It sounds very similar to the position that Isla was in. Is this as part of the inspiration for her situation? That's right. It's not coincidental that it sounds <laughs> somewhat similar. For me, as a writer, I just find that particular moment in Esther so moving and pivotal. It's because at the start, she seems to be acted upon and all these things happen to her. And then she comes to a point where she has to make a really brutal choice. So on the one hand, she's 
a young girl who's been given opportunities for fame, fortune. She has, she's the queen, so she has security, she has safety, she has comfort. And she's being asked to choose between those things and identifying with an oppressed people and risking her life to try to save theirs. Mm. And the moment when she says, if I perish, I perish, I think that's such a moving mm. moment. So you found the Bible was a, a worthy place of inspiration? I think the Bible is a worthy place of inspiration. And I think it's very interesting if you reflect, at least in the area that I've been writing in, in speculative teen fiction, how often you have a main character who we love and we care about, who is drawn into a situation where they have to decide whether they're going to risk themselves for the sake of others. And that moves us and that appeals to us. And I think that the reason why that touches a chord in us is that that taps into the greatest story, the real story of God working in the world and how he came into the world to save us because that's what we think a real hero is, someone who would risk themselves for the sake of others. So you've just mentioned now that the Bible is obviously a source of inspiration for you, but, but why is that for you? Like what was it that convinced you that the Bible was worth following, that this was the true, real story? For me, when I was a teenager, I came across the Bible and for me... Because you didn't grow up in a Christian home or anything? or Christian I didn't, Christian? no. I, I was invited to a church youth group by a friend when I was in my mid-teens and that was the very first time I'd been in a church building and the very first time as far as I knew that I'd met people from church right, apart yeah. from this friend. <laughs> Yeah, so that, what was it about this friend? Well, I was actually a bit of a smart aleck and <laughs> I'm sure you can't believe that of me now. <laughs> but I had lots of arguments and clever things to say to my friend and she just responded to me with kindness and tried to deal with me <laughs> and just um, she was convicted by the truth of what Jesus said about himself in the Bible and even though I probably gave her a pretty hard time, actually, I would go home and think about why was she so convinced by this story? Yep. Why did she think this story was real? And then I confronted the Jesus of the Bible that's written about in the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, and... I found him very confronting and very challenging and I felt like the words that he said took me to a place where I had to decide, like it was important that I decided whether he was real and whether what he said was true or not. If he was not saying the truth, then the things he said wouldn't really matter, but the claims were so big that I felt that I had to make a decision one way or the other. Yeah. And that yeah. was quite uncomfortable. And so obviously you did make that decision in the I affirmative. Did. Yeah. So did so Jesus then seemed real to you? Yes. From the accounts, he is surprising, he is confronting, he is real. 
yeah, he's he's quite a difficult person to come to terms with mm, yeah. in many ways. <laughs> in the New Testament book of John, which is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life that we have, and one of Jesus' disciples has an encounter with Jesus after his resurrection where Thomas wouldn't believe unless, as it says in verse 25, I can see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So what do you think Thomas thought was real? So Thomas is requiring evidence from not one, not two, but three different senses before he will accept that the risen Jesus is real. So he's got a pretty high bar and he wants to actually touch Jesus before he'll accept that this is the risen Jesus. Is that reasonable though? I totally identify with Thomas. I can understand exactly how he felt and I talk about that in a different way in the book where people are appearing to Because the characters in the book use a headset a lot of the time, but they don't use other equipment, so they can't touch the virtual reality, but they can see and hear. And a lot of times they come up against this warring evidence of the senses, and if you can't touch the person, it doesn't seem like they're there. So on the one hand, someone will be talking to you, someone looks like they're there, and you reach out to touch them because you feel alone, but there's nothing there. And so you know in the most profound sense you are alone. Mm. So I think that that's what Thomas felt. And I so understand how he felt. He wanted to touch Jesus Mm. to know that he was real. Yeah. And interestingly, Jesus then appears and satisfies Thomas' demand when it says in verse 26, a week later his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. So it seems that Jesus was actually happy to satisfy Thomas's demands for what was real. So how do you react to that? That really moves me because Jesus is meeting Thomas where he is, not where he perhaps should be. He's saying to Thomas, I know what you need and I'm going to provide it for you and that's what he does if you read the other encounters he has with all different people he challenges them at the spot where they are and sees their needs and tries to address their needs and explain how he addresses their mm. needs so i love that he yeah so he's, he's, he's so there, kind he's, to thomas he almost provides reassurance he does. in some respects that he's still real as a as he's been resurrected now he does yeah and then thomas responds then with belief in verse 28 where he says my lord and my god And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So what does Jesus comment here on believing without seeing, like, like, like Thomas has? What does that mean for our understanding of what is therefore real? Well, I love that comment because I am one of those... Yes, it's because you believe you haven't touched Jesus physically, but but you still think that he's real though, don't you? I still think that he is real. And that, for me, is based on the eyewitness accounts like this one that you've just been talking about. So I think that it is reasonable to decide that something is real if you gather all the available evidence you have about that thing and then you weigh up the evidence and make a decision. So do you think that it would be the same if Jesus' resurrection 
was simply a virtual resurrection, like it wasn't actually real in the physical world, would that matter? That would matter to me most profoundly. I think that would matter. I think it has to be real in the, sen in the sense of objective reality. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that if that didn't really happen, if that person standing before Thomas wasn't really the risen Jesus, then our faith is in vain. We, as in the apostles, such as Paul, have been misrepresenting God. And those people that have believed us are the most to be pitied. So it matters. Yeah. So in what way then do you think something needs to be real before someone can believe it? Well, as I said, I think that we, it absolutely has to be real. And the way in which I have decided it's real, and I think the way in which the Bible and Jesus of the Bible invites us to decide if it's real is by weighing up the eyewitness accounts. And that brings to mind at the start of Luke's Gospel where he talks about why he's written down the, the book that he's written and he says that he's trying to weigh up and put together the eyewitness accounts so that Theophilus, who he's writing to, can judge well, he doesn't use the word real, he uses the word truth, but I think it's a similar mm. idea, whether these things really happened, whether his beliefs are based on something real. That was incredibly important to him. It's incredibly important to me. And I think the Bible actually invites us. Jesus is always saying to people, well, look at the things that have been said about me. Look at the things I'm doing. What do you think? Make a decision. Mm. Yeah. So reality and truth then are intertwined. Yes, I think so. So Catherine, how do I know what's real? Well, I think that you start with the available evidence and logically weighing up the available evidence. But the problem with that is that when we logically weigh up the available evidence for our ability to reason about the evidence, we're actually plagued by unconscious biases mm. and we're actually often fairly irrational. So we're limited in various ways to get there with our own rationality. So then what do you do? If all you've got is your humanity and you want to humanly reason about things and make a right decision, but you're limited because yep. you are human, you need help. And I think that that's what Jesus offers, help. Yes, a bigger story. From, from the outside of humanity. So you need God's help. Yeah. A, a bigger story that we can A bigger connect. story, a revelation, in right. fact. Yes. Yeah. Well, let me leave you with some of the Bible's reflections on this big question from John 20, 29. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Dr. Catherine Kenobi. Hi everyone, Rob Martin here, host of Bigger Questions. Now if you'd like to be part of the live audience of Bigger Questions, we're currently recording. Uh, we're doing a Melbourne City Lunchtime series throughout September and October. Now every fortnight we're exploring Songs of the Heart. 
six ancient songs uh, with wisdom for life's biggest questions. And we have some fantastic guests, uh, including Matt Jacoby, lead singer of the uh, Psalms project band Sons of Korah. We've got Sylvie Palladino, who regularly performs at uh, Carols by Candlelight. I've got CEO, Dr. Jenny George. She's, she's going to be speaking on mental fitness, and there's much more as well. All the recordings are at lunchtime, and you can be part of the live audience uh, where you could ask your questions, you can have your cheer uh, recorded for the podcast, but also ensure you bring your other big questioners as we reflect on these ancient songs with some surprising answers for the modern world. So you can check out biggerquestions.org slash songs for all the details, and we hope to see you there. And also, in case you missed it, we're now streaming Bigger Questions on Spotify. So if you're a Spotify user, you can subscribe, stream, and enjoy yet more Bigger Questions. So thanks again for listening to Bigger Questions. Don't forget to follow Bigger Questions on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please share the show with your friends or colleagues. Let's get the word out and get more people asking the bigger questions in our world. And if you want to invest in bigger thinking, then maybe you could support us on Patreon. For as little as US $1 a podcast, you can help create better dialogue around the bigger questions of life. So thanks once again for listening, and remember to keep asking the bigger questions.